Hey Icon and Bay City, good to be with you today. We are in week two of our Father Abraham series and we are continuing in Genesis chapter 12. So if you want to turn there ahead of time, we're going to start in verse 10. And uh, I, I, I want to set up this message because we are in a very interesting time in our world. We are just a few months away from presidential election. Uh, as I preach this sermon, we are two days removed from the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which has uh, been quite the experience. It's been kind of an uproar and really raised the stakes for this upcoming election. And I say all that not because this is going to be a very political sermon at all, and I'm not getting into politics uh, in general, but because today's sermon is about doing the right thing no matter the consequences, right? Doing the right thing, no matter the consequences, doing what we know as Christians is obedience, no matter what might come from it, okay? And since there is a lot of dialogue happening right now on both sides of the aisle about what to do in this situation in light of what happened uh, in 2016, um, this seems like an opportune moment for us to take a very old story about choosing to do the right thing no matter the consequences and apply it to our everyday, two-day, real-world life. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And if you didn't join us last week for the kickoff of this series, I want to give you a little recap because it really frames up uh, something I really love about this story and about the Bible in general. So last week we looked at Genesis 12, 1 through 4, which is the calling of Abram, right? Abram, who later becomes Abraham. Uh, this is one of the biggest moments in the whole Bible, right? Where God sets apart Abraham through whom he is going to establish Israel and work out his whole plan of salvation. So these four verses are some of the most important, most oft quoted, most relied upon verses in the whole Bible. It's really an important moment that God comes to Abraham and says, listen, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to this land that I will show you and I will bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Like this, this massive promise. And on the strength of that promise of God to Abraham, Abraham obeys, right? This is kind of a, a huge obedience moment for Abraham who doesn't have this well-established relationship with God. God shows up and in one form or another says, hey, I need you to leave everything you know. I need you to go to a place. I, I'm not going tell you about it, but I just, just trust me, right? And what's Abraham's response? He goes, right? It says he obeyed God and just went. So it's this amazing, amazing moment of like, wow, God has chosen this man. He must be incredible. He's demonstrating this great faith. He's trusting God. God's chosen this guy to, to kind of funnel all of his grace and his plan through him and then the very next story, literally the very next story, is Abraham failing like crazy failure, as we're going to see here in a moment. Which, I just, I just love this about the Bible, that it tells the story as it happened. 
and in fact, not only doesn't hide the bad stuff, but in many ways highlights the bad stuff in order to give us a, a very realistic, what, what we would call an anthropology, a, a way of understanding people. A Christian anthropology begins with the fact that we are all icons made in the image of God, where we at Icon get our name, that we're made in the image of God, that that's the truest thing about us, and that we are fundamentally flawed and broken human beings, right? So not only does the Bible not hide this, but this is an example of the Bible really highlighting this because we've got years probably that take place between Genesis 12, one through four, and then verse 10, because uh, Abraham and his family are traveling a great distance here. And, and so there are years that have gone by. You'd think that if they were trying to make Abraham look good, they would have added some stories along the way, even if they were lame stories like, oh yeah, this one time we were on this long walk and Abraham said this funny thing and it was hilarious. Anyway, then he did this terrible thing, right? Like you'd think they could just slide in some kind of innocuous story to break up the narrative a little bit, but no. We go straight from the calling of Abram to the failure of Abram. And we're going to see it's a pretty big failure. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, says this. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, who becomes Sarah later, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And I got to imagine, that's got to be a pretty cool moment for Sarah, right? Like they're just walking, they've been walking a long time. It's a long way between Canaan and Abram, or Canaan and Egypt. And, and you know, they get to the border and he stops and goes, baby, you're beautiful. And in fact, not only do I think you're beautiful, but when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, right? I'm giving a little bit of an emphasis here, but like he's gonna, the Egyptians are gonna look at me and they're gonna look at you and go, this is his wife? Holy smokes, she is beautiful. And it just, I mean, Sarah's gotta be melting at this point, right? And then he says, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now that escalated very quickly, right? Like the, it starts with this profession of her beauty and man, even the Egyptians are gonna be able to see how beautiful you are and they'll probably kill me and take you if that happens. So. I got a plan, he says. He says, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life might be spared for your sake. Okay, so again, in the narrative, they're long, traveling long distance, trying to find food in the midst of a famine. He declares the beauty of his wife. The Egyptians are gonna know your beauty, so they might kill me to get you. So here's the plan. Say you're my sister, that it might go well with me and I don't die, right? So a couple things here. One, this is pretty short-sighted on Abram's part because sure, the Egyptians, it, it may go well with him with the Egyptians and they might not kill him, but Sarah definitely will later, right? Like, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, but like it's not going to go well with him with Sarah after this plan, right? So this is his idea. This is his plan. Say you are my sister, okay? Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, all jokes aside, how could this happen? Right? Abram walks into Egypt, understands that he has a beautiful wife, is afraid, certainly, of what these Egyptians might do to him in order to get a hold of her. But, but before any of that actually happens, I mean, just based on the risk alone, Abram hatches this plan to say, say you're my sister, which, you know, if that was it, it's still lying, but maybe the stakes wouldn't be that big if it was just say you're my sister and then we'll kind of make it through. But no, he says, say you're my sister, knowing full well that this means that probably Pharaoh is going to include Sarah in his harem, basically, and, and make her one of his many wives or concubine. And that that might allow Abram to get off the hook. Like, what was his exit plan on this, right? Like, event, just to live out his days in Egypt and be able to check in on his sister every once in a while. Like, what's the plan here, Abram, right? So it's a very short-sighted kind of plan. But, it, but uh, beside all that, like, how do you get to a point where in one moment you are trusting God to leave everything you know, to follow him in this unknown direction, believing the promises of God, and then the very next moment you're hatching this plan to sell out your wife to Pharaoh so that she becomes part of his harem in order to save your own skin, that it may go well with me. And he's got the guts to say it to her face. Hey, here's the plan. Let's do this so that it might go well with me. Like, that's crazy. How could Abram do something so obviously wrong? Well, there's a very simple answer. It's one answer. Every single time any of us are faced with the dilemma of doing what we are tempted to do or doing what is right. The only reason this happens, the only reason that we choose our desires over our convictions is because we allow our desires to overrule our convictions. That what we want in the moment is more important to us than what we believe is true. That's it. It's simple. This could be a very short sermon. It won't be, but it could be a very short sermon. We could just go, listen, every single time we're in this situation, it's because we're allowing our desires to overrule our convictions. Don't do that. Do the opposite. Allow your convictions to overrule desires. Let's pray. But no, there's more because it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. Every single time we are faced with this decision, that's the rub. It's desire and conviction. And we see this happen in Abram's story in chapter 12. But here's the thing, guys. He does it again. In Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech, he basically does the same thing again. We'll read that here in a moment. But in these two different occasions, there, there was a tension. There's this rub between what Abram desired in the moment and what his true convictions about what was right 
would be, right? So in Genesis 12, verse 13, he says to her, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared because of you. He goes, I value my life being spared, and I value things going well with me more than I love you. Again, in Genesis 20, verse 11, it says, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? This is a really interesting question that Abimelech asks after the fact, after it's all kind of come out. Abimelech asks Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Right? Like, what was it about our situation? What was it about your life that caused you to choose your desires over your convictions? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Very simply, Abram wanted to protect his life more than he wanted to protect his wife. It even rhymes. That makes it true, right? But this is what we see. Abram, in this moment, chooses to protect and value his own life over choosing to protect and value his own wife. And I mean, he had other options, right? It's not like as he walks into Egypt or he walks into Abimelech's land that, that this was the only choice. Say you're my sister, so they take you in as their uh, concubine. And, and that's basically the only option, right? Like they could have, he could have done a million things. He could have, you know, changed her into like some really heavy cloak, right? Like could have swapped out her high heels for some Birkenstocks. That will change things every time, right? Like he could have taught her some sort of shrill laugh or I, I don't know, there's a lot of ways that he could have downgraded her beauty and kind of skirted this issue. He could have gotten much more creative than, hey, just say you're my sister and enter into the concubine. That's pretty much best case scenario, right? But he didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. Every single time, every single time we face this situation, we have a choice to make, right? Do what is right or get what we want. Desires in the moment or convictions about what is good and true. Now, the Bible has a word for this. It's a word that the Bible uses over and over and over to talk about those moments when we choose our desires, what those desires are, what they're called, is idolatry. Those things are idols. And an idol is anything we love honor or obey more than God, that we love that thing more than God, we honor that thing more than God or person, or we obey that thing or person more than God. When we do that, when we love, honor, or obey anything, any idea, any group, any person more than we do God, we make an idol out of. And so we love it more than God, so we honor it more than God, and we obey it more than God. The Bible uses this word over and over and over and over. Now, this word is a real-world word. Okay, so oftentimes we can think of idolatry as this kind of spiritual thing, this woo-woo kind of like, yeah, these desires, this, this stuff, the spiritual stuff. But no, this is real world stuff that translates to real world decisions we make all the time. And those real world decisions have real world consequences. 
Every single time we love, honor, or obey something else more than God, and that chooses our path towards what I desire now over what is my conviction, what I know to be right and true, that always has real-world consequences. There's stakes to this. It's not theoretical, right? We see a bunch of consequences in Abraham's stories in Genesis 12 and 20. Some immediate consequences that come of it. I've got eight. Number one, other people suffer. When, when we choose to do what we desire and not what we know is right, other people suffer. Sarah was sold into slavery, basically. She was given over to a powerful king or leader to be able to use as he desired. Right? This is a real-world consequence for Sarah. Pharaoh was plagued. Doesn't say exactly how he was plagued and how his house was plagued, but given the circumstances, I got to imagine it was a bad plague, right? Abimelech in Genesis 20, you see that God actually appears to him in a dream and threatens his life. So Abram's sin implicates Sarah, Pharaoh, and Abimelech and brings real world consequences onto them. And all of our sin, all of our idolatry does the same. Number two, when we allow desires to, to overrule our convictions, we are allowing our subconscious emotions and desires to run our lives, right? We, we are not driven by conviction. We're driven by fear. We're driven by some danger we perceive. We're driven by some urge, some temptation, some need that's within us that is unchecked by desire, un, uh, ungraded by desire, and we just pursue it, often subconsciously. Number three, it becomes a habit. When we do something once, we become far more likely to do it again and again and again. And we see this in Abraham's story that he did it in Genesis 12. He emerges largely unscathed. And so when faced with a similar danger, he does it again and gives over Sarah to Abimelech. It just gets easier to sin every time we do it. Number four, we implicate other people in our sin. In Genesis 20 verse 5, Abimelech talking to God, right? So God comes to Abimelech in a dream, says you're a dead man because you've got another man's wife in your home, in your bed. And Abimelech says back to God, says, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. So listen, Abimelech is implicated in Abram's lie, but look how Abram implicated Sarah as well. Sarah said to Abimelech, yes, he is my brother brother, which is a lie. And I, I want to finish that verse because I think it's hilarious. Abimelech says to God, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I, I love the audacity that Abimelech says to God, oh, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have taken this woman into my home against her will and made her one of my concubine. It's not my fault, God. They lied to me. Like that's ridiculous, okay? But other people are implicated. Number five, we build a web of partial truths and justifications. In Genesis 20, verse 12, Abram, defending himself to Abimelech, says, besides, 
She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So this is Abram going, well, I mean, technically I didn't lie to you because she is my sister. She's like my half-sister, but she, she is my wife. I didn't mention that part as a half-truth. I'm going to justify it by going, yeah, she is my sister, which is just kind of gross on top of this whole story, right? But that's another thing. So you, you've got this, this web of half-truths and justification and rationalization that happens when we begin to choose our desires. Number six, we blame shift. And often in the most heinous way, Abram in verse 13 of chapter 20 says, he says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, right? He tells the story to Abimelech and he goes, see, God caused me to wander from my father's house. And that's what got me into all this trouble. But, you know, you read the story and go, is that what happened? Is that what happened, Abraham? God caused you to wander from your father's house? Or did God call you with a purpose to leave your father's house to pursue this vision that God had for your life? And didn't you go of your own volition? Didn't you obey that call by your own choice? So let's not blame shift, especially not blame shift to God saying, well, God put me in this situation. I had no other choice but to sell my wife into this slavery. Number seven. Our witness gets harmed. Our, our Christian witness is harmed. In Genesis 20, verse 16, Abimelech, check this, Abimelech actually is saying to Sarah at the end of all this, that it's all come out and he's, he's sending them on their way. God spares Abimelech's life. And this is what Abimelech says to Sarah. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. I mean, listen, listen to what he's saying. Abimelech cares more about the perceived innocence of Sarah than her husband did. Right? Like this is a moment where Abram's got to be in the back of the room just feeling all the shame that he should be feeling because this guy Abimelech, not a Christian, not following God, actually honors Sarah more than Abraham, her husband, did. Which makes him look terrible. Right? Like when we begin to follow our desires, not our conviction, our desire for power, our desire for safety, our desire for whatever, we begin to actually erode our witness, erode our ability to, to say anything is good, right, and true when we consistently choose what we want and not what is good, right, and true. Number eight, we get caught. You, you can't run from your sin forever eventually you will get caught. You might be able to skirt and skirt and skirt, justify and half-truth and blame shift and, and kind of put the blame on other people. And, and you might be able to avoid consequences for a while, but it's not forever. Like you will eventually get caught when you consistently choose your desires over your convictions. It, the consequences will happen. And there's no avoiding that. So listen, Abraham faced a choice that was a lot more dire than most of the choices we're facing. And he made a decision that was a lot more terrible than most of the decisions we make, right? Like he saw his life on the line here in two, on two different occasions. 
And he did a terribly heinous and, and just unimaginable thing by handing over his wife. But, but the fundamental issue is not different than issues we face every day. Well, we are tempted to sacrifice our convictions for some desire. And so, because we face that over and over and over, I, I want to finish up by talking about what do we do to prepare ourselves to do the right thing no matter what, right? That's the idea. That's the lesson that we want to draw from this story is that no matter the consequences, we as Christians should always do the right thing. No matter what we think the consequences might be, we always have to do the right thing, okay? So how do we do that? It's easier said than done. I got five quick things. Number one, make a plan. And I would say, make a proactive plan. Temptation is consistent. Most of us are tempted in the same ways over and over and over and over. And often, our failure to live up to our convictions, but to kind of follow our desires. That failure, that decision happens very quickly, right? In fact, there's some data to suggest that most of these decisions, most of the times we succumb to our desires, it's almost completely subconscious. Dr. David Eagleman, a neurologist and best-selling author, says that 95% of our decisions are made by our unconscious mind. In fact, New research from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, you know the one, uh, shows that even when we think we've made a conscious decision, our brain has already made up its mind seven seconds before, okay? Probably you've heard some of this research that the vast majority, up to maybe 95% of our decisions are completely subconscious. They're just things we do without thinking. Right? Which means that when temptation emerges, it's speaking to, it's triggering these subconscious things within us. And it's not even a, like a process of going, okay, what are we going to do here? How am I going to handle this situation? This, I feel temptation. How am I going to deal with that temptation? No, it's not like that. It's boom, boom, boom. Right? So what's that mean? It means the majority of our decisions are the result of habits and practices well-worn into our subconscious and reflective of our deepest desires. Um, theologian, professor, uh, writer, James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love uh, that I, I could not recommend more highly. And in it, he says this. He says, once you realize that you are not just a thinking thing, right? Like you are not this kind of cognitive only being. In fact, we are not even primarily cognitive beings. Once we realize we're not just thinking things, but we are creatures of habit, you'll then realize that temptation isn't just about bad ideas or wrong decisions. It's often a factor of deformation and wrongly ordered habits. In other words, our sins aren't just discrete wrong actions and bad decisions. They reflect vices, something more deeply within us. And overcoming them requires more than just knowledge. It requires rehabituation, a reformation of our loves. In other words, 
when, when, we, when we make the decision to follow our desire and not our convictions, not only are they not conscious, but they're often not the result of lack of information. In fact, I would argue almost never are they the result of a lack of information. So if in that moment of decision, someone was able to break into time and go, stop, you're about to make this decision. Is it because you don't know that this is the right decision and this is the wrong decision and what you need is more information? Or is it because what you want is this more than this and so you're going to do this? And I would say 999 times out of 1,000, it is not an information gap. It is a desire gap. Okay, so then the answer is not new information or more knowledge. It is reformation and rehabituation right? We are mostly tempted in the same ways all the time. So the way in which you're tempted is not the same way necessarily that I'm tempted, but, this, but the ways in which I'm tempted are pretty consistent, right? I'm not, there's a lot of things I'm not tempted by in a normal situation. Like I'm not tempted to over drink or overeat. I'm not tempted. I mean, there's just certain things I'm not tempted to do, but there are consistent ways that I am tempted. Right? And, I, and I know what those things are. So whether it's, you know, whether it's drink or it's power or it's lust or it's, you know, for many of us fitting in, and wanting to be approved of and, and appreciated by the people around us. And, and that becomes this kind of, this desire, this great overruling desire to go, gosh, I know that this is right, but this tribe that I'm a part of, no matter what tribe it might be, they say this is right. And what I want more than anything is to be approved by this tribe, by this group of people. I want them to think I'm smart. I want them to think I get it, that I see it, that I'm aware, that I see what's really happening and I'm on board, that I, I'm one of them. That's what I want more than anything. And so even though I know following this path is not the path that is right, it's not the path God has created for me, it's not the way he's called me to be and to live, it's not consistent with my convictions, but it's what I want. And the, and the gap's not an information gap. It's not that I, I think that this is actually what God wants. We do a bit of rationalization and justification on the back end by going, this is what I want, so let me try to figure out how to spin the narrative in such a way that it does reflect what God wants. But that's not happening by and large at the beginning. That's happening at the end. Right? So we've got to make a plan, a proactive plan that says, listen, I recognize and I'm humble enough to admit the ways in which I know I am tempted. Here are my weaknesses. I want to go this way, not this way, in this situation, this situation, this situation. How am I going to make a plan that prevents me from doing that in that moment? Because what I want, when I have these moments of clarity, these moments of thoughtfulness, I know that what I want is to obey God. What I want is to be the woman, be the man that God has called me to be. But I know that in these particular moments, I am tempted to walk down this other path for the sake of approval, for the sake of power, for the sake of fear, for the sake of whatever. So how am I going to prepare for those moments well? To choose my convictions over my desires. That's number one. Number two, establish clear convictions. 
right? Like there, there are most of our situations are, are abundantly clear, right? I would say the vast majority are not complicated. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't, don't cheat on your spouse in any fashion. Work hard, rest, be humble, be kind, be fair, treat people like humans, right? Like most of these decisions are not complicated, but some of them are, right? Like some, some, of these, some of these decisions we have to make are complicated and we live in an increasingly complicated world, or at least it appears to be increasingly complicated to me. Right, so you know, most of our decisions are, are not hard decisions to make and they're not complicated. They might be hard to actually live out, but they're not difficult, they're not complicated, but some are. And so what do we do in those situations? Well, if we're trying to figure out what our convictions are in the moment, it's too late, we've lost, we will just follow whatever desire we have in that moment, right? It's far too late that we have to do the work on the front end when we see that, gosh, there, there is a complicated issue out there and certainly elections are obvious illustrations of this complication for us to be able to look at something like this and go, okay, there is a tangled web of convictions and desires and ideas and we've got to parse out what is right. Because by the time we're in the moment, it's too late. And I don't just mean in the voting booth. When you're on Twitter, when you're on Facebook, when you're with friends and you're defending a position, or you're defending a candidate, or you're, you're arguing passionately for someone, or there's a debate about something. Man, when you're in that moment, there are so many emotional temptations happening that it is far too late if you haven't already done the work to secure your convictions. So, first thing you gotta do is do the work to figure it out. Do the hard work of actually caring about this stuff enough to go to the scriptures, to go to trusted writers, to, to do the research, to go come to some conviction that you have. And don't worry about whether it's ultimately right or wrong. I mean, you, we're all doing our best to figure that part out, right? You've got to come to a place of conviction that you can stand up to whatever emotional waves might be kind of tempting you down different paths so that you can stay firm to your highest values and non-negotiables, right? Like this, the, the, the political and cultural world today is as crazy as I've seen it in my 40 plus years now, right? It, it, it just seems like every minute things are changing. And, and I'm seeing people all over the church, our church here at Icon and around the larger church in general, compromising their faith in both directions. Knowingly, I literally had a conversation with a friend yesterday about this very thing, where he knowingly is compromising elements of his faith for what he deems as a greater good, a greater danger, right? And, and I could literally be describing someone on either end of the political spectrum right now because it seems like the only thing we have in common is that we all agree that the stakes are existential, that the stakes are out of this world crazy. So anything we do will, will mean certain death one direction or the other. 
Okay? And so I, I, I'm seeing a lot of people who trend conservative grasping for political power to keep or gain political power. And I see the same thing on the left, but I also see many of my friends on the left grasping for cultural power. And certainly it's both directions and everybody's grasping for things. And so many times that desire for power that's reflective of a great fear we feel of powerlessness and what someone with power would do to me who would be powerless is overruling our convictions about what it means to be Christian, to act Christianly, and to do the right thing no matter the consequences. So number one, make a plan. Number two, establish clear convictions. Number three, pursue reinforcing and not undermining community. Pursue reinforcing community, not undermining community, right? Here's what I mean by this. Once we have established clear convictions, especially if your convictions are Christian convictions, that basically everything out there will be in tension with your convictions. And it will be warring against, fighting against, and trying to push you away from those Christian convictions. You need people around you who will be a reinforcing community. That will be people who will speak back to you what it is you need to hear. Right? So we all hear about echo chambers being a negative thing. Echo chambers aren't necessarily negative. Echo chambers are just saying back to you what you are saying. So if you are saying gospel biblical truth and hearing back gospel biblical truth, that's an echo chamber worth staying in. So having those voices that, that, are, that are reaffirming these gospel convictions, these biblical convictions we have, is really, really valuable. Okay, Because there's a lot of contrary uh, opinions and voices out there and that are pulling us and tearing us in different directions. And it is by all means really important for us to hear outside voices. But man, if, if our primary community are our internet avatars and not real life people, we've got no chance. We should be listening to internet avatars, but doing life with real people. The internet and social media in general makes much better windows than doors. Something to look through, to look at, to see through, but not to enter in with. Enter in with people. Watch and learn and listen through the internet. So finding that reinforcing community and committing yourself to, to life with real people who will echo back to you gospel truth is a, a huge part of this. Number four, ready yourself for the consequences. There will be consequences. Here's the thing, Abraham might not have been wrong. When he said to Sarah, hey, if we go in and they see you're beautiful and they think you're my wife, they'll probably kill me and take you. He might've been right. He still did the wrong thing, but he might've been right. See, the key here and what we're learning from Abraham, what we learn from the testimony of the scriptures is we cannot be driven by the consequences of our actions. 
We have to do the right thing no matter the consequences. And here's what we know. We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. So good, right behavior will often be met with negative consequences. That's the way the system of the world right now works. That should not dissuade us. We should go into the world with clear eyes, understanding I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to ready myself to deal with the consequences. You will lose power. You will lose face. People will ridicule you. You might lose your job. Okay. That's true. Now what? Now what? Does, does all of that mean then that you won't do the right thing? That you'll, that you'll move towards approval, move towards tribal affiliation instead of doing the right thing, even though that doing the right thing might mean your tribe rejects you and defames you, removes you from their ranks, that you might lose a job, lose face, lose popularity, lose power, lose money. That's the choice. That's the choice we have in front of us. So let's not go into this world thinking kind of Pollyanna-ish as if we could just do the right thing and everything's going to turn out right. No, no, no. Nothing about the world right now tells us that's true. So steal yourself to face down the consequences. Be clear-eyed about it. Understand, like Abraham did, I know what the stakes are. The stakes are is I could die. But you know what, Sarah? I love you. You are my wife. My job is to protect you. My job is to stand for you. My job is to lay down my life for you if that is what I'm called to. And so I will walk proudly with you. Maybe you don't do your makeup, I don't know. But, but like, I will walk proudly with you, defending you, and I would never sell you out, no matter if they take me to the gallows. That's what we gotta do. Which leads us to number five. We have to trust God. We simply have to trust God. God is omniscient, all-powerful, and you aren't. And God is not only omniscient and all-powerful, but God is for your greatest good. And you're not. I'm not. I am often for my immediate good. God not only knows the future, sees the future, is powerful enough to bring about the future, but he also cares about my greatest good, not my immediate desire. We saw this last week. We talked about this, that God is the father, the Lord, the king, the coach, the mentor, the boss that we have always wanted, that he wants our greatest good, which means sometimes that there will be pain along the way because there are things we need to learn and experiences we need to have that would bring about that greatest good. So we have to believe and trust that God can handle the future no matter who is in power. I mean, there is an implicit confession when people on either side as Christians will lay down Christian convictions about telling the truth, about valuing all people, about seeking the greatest good. When we are willing to lay that down in order to obtain some worldly power, political power, cultural power of any kind, what we are saying is, I know the future. And I know 
that if that person gets in power or retains power, then this world is, it's over. I mean, we'll be in real trouble. And that person, no matter who that person is, they are, in effect, we are saying, more powerful than God. Them being in political, cultural power overrules, overrides, in fact, trumps the power of God, which reflects and testifies to an inherent lack of faith in the power of God to bring about the ends that he desires. Man, I, I hope that pulls us all up short. When we are tempted to say things, yeah, I know this or I know that, I know this part's not great, I know that part's not great, I know this is a real problem, I know this is a real problem, but if the other guy, no. Man, that is us saying, this could be bad, this could be bad, this could be bad, and God can't do anything about it. This is the only way. This is Abraham going, the only way to save my life, Sarah, is to pretend like you're my sister, not my wife. No. They should have stood at the edge of Egypt and prayed. Abraham should have said, God, please protect us. I know you've called me to be a, a great nation. You've promised to bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me. I followed you as a result of that promise. Now, please, as we enter into Egypt, I am deeply afraid of what they might do to me because my wife is so hot and I am just so concerned about this. Please protect us. And then walked boldly into Egypt, trusting in the protection of God. That's what Abraham should have done. But he didn't. Because he thought he knew better. He was driven by fear. And he chose his desires in the moment over his convictions. Now, lest you think that this is a message about being good, right? Let, let, let's not make that mistake. I know we're here at the very end of the message, but, uh, uh, but there is this common misconception about Christianity that the basic idea is if you're good, God will love you and God will accept you. And that is flat out the opposite of what the gospel says. That is flat out the opposite of the historic Christian message. The, the message is not be good and God will love you. The message is God loves you. Follow him because he loves you. And the path that he's laid out before you is for your greatest good. So lest we think that this message is about be good, do good, do the right thing, do the right thing, and then God will walk with you, let's catch what God says about Abram. Turn to Genesis chapter 20, and we'll wrap up with this. Genesis chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. This is God has shown up to Abimelech in his dream and is kind of threatening his life. He says this, Abimelech is responding, saying, Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Right? Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this. And I, I just picture God using air quotes here, right? In the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. Right? Did you catch that? God said that Abram was a prophet. Still. Still. And, and later in chapter 20, Abram prays for Abimelech and he's fine. Right? Like everything goes back to normal. God, how could God say after Abraham twice has given over his wife, how can he still say that Abraham is a prophet and give him power and actually work graciously through him. How? Why? Because the story has never been about Abraham. It's always been about God. 
The story is about God. It's not about how good Abraham is. It's not about faithful Abraham is. It's not about how obedient Abraham is. It's about how good, faithful God is. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. This is why the, the writer of Genesis goes, calling of Abraham. God promises this guy Abraham out of nowhere. There's nothing Abraham's done up to this point that legitimizes God's promise to him. And then he walks out the door and the very next story is him handing over his wife to Pharaoh to go, hello, in case you were going to make a hero out of Abraham, he's no hero. He, he literally gave his wife into slavery two times. This is not a story about Abraham. This is a story about God. Abraham is a tool, figuratively and literally, that God is using to bring about his plan. The same way God will use you, bless you, mature you, walk with you, and there's nothing you can do that will ever change that. This is a story about God, yours, is a story about God. That's why when we get into these decisions about conviction or desire, so often the reason why we walk down this path of desire is because we have this implicit kind of assumption that the story is about us and about what we want and what we think and what we desire and who we want to be. It's not about us. It's about God. It's a story about God's world and God providing for us in that world, God calling us to be part of his kingdom in the world, and that God uses us graciously as his tools, as his conduits of grace to the rest of the world. This is God's story from beginning to end. It's not about you. It's not dependent upon you. God's grace and love for you is about him. It's not about you. We live from God's love and care, not for God's love and care. And when we can start believing that, we will start choosing our convictions over our desires. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so very thankful for you. That, that you give us stories like this uh, because we like to make idols. And if, and if the whole testimony about Abraham had just been about all the good decisions and all the faithfulness and all the obedience and all the responding to the call and all the faith and all that, we, we would make an idol out of Abraham and we would just try to be Abraham. Instead, you give us a story about your faithfulness so that we can see ourselves in Abraham really plainly, both the ups and the downs, and your constant love and faithfulness through it all. God, I pray that it would be that, in those moments of temptation, that we would cling to. That you are good, you are powerful, you are all-knowing, you are omniscient, and you want our greatest good. So in those moments of desire to be something, to be a part of something, to be approved and affirmed and gain power, grasp power, keep power, that we would remember, gosh, what you want for us is so much better than what we want for ourselves. And that that conviction would drive us to do what is right, no matter the consequences. Pray that you would empower us by grace to do just that over and over and over through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. 
During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.